Have you ever been to a dramatic production? I'm talking about a live production. And as you sat there watching the show unfold, the thought went on, what is going on backstage? What is going on backstage? Because there's a lot more going on backstage than's going on on stage. And if what's going on on backstage was not happening, what's going on on stage would certainly not be happening. Backstage determines the success of what happens on stage. Now, for the last month, as we have reviewed the Christmas story, we've looked at shepherds and the baby in the manger, etc. But there was a backstage to Bethlehem. There was a backstage to the whole Christmas story. And that backstage precedes what happened even with the announcement to Mary that she was going to have a baby. And what I'm going to ask you to do this morning in your mind with me is to journey backstage, to go past Bethlehem, past the shepherds, past the announcement of Jesus' birth, and to go to heaven and to be present in heaven with Jesus when He looks at the Father and gets ready to leave heaven to come to this earth and be born. Because the Christmas story doesn't start in Bethlehem, it doesn't start with the angels, it doesn't even start with Mary's announcement from Gabriel that she's going to have a child. It starts backstage in heaven, and what Jesus says to the Father in heaven sets up and determines everything else that's going to happen. If you have your Bibles, if you would turn with me to Hebrews chapter 10, sermon outline is contained in your bulletin if you will follow along there. The context that we're going to look at today is that for 400 years from the close of the book of Malachi until we get to Bethlehem, we have 400 of what are called silent years. No prophet from God, nothing has been said from the Lord for 400 years, and yet the people are living in anticipation of the coming of a Messiah, but it's been silent for 400 years. God seems to be silent and God seems to be inactive. But write this down, whenever God seems to be silent, and whenever the Lord seems to be inactive, you can mark it down, He is active. God does not require a lot of noise and fireworks in order to get His work done. He does some of His greatest work when it is seemingly silent and when He seemingly is inactive. Now, the key word in the book of Hebrews is superior. Jesus is superior in who he is and in what he does. Now, the book of Hebrews, as best we can tell, was written to Jewish Christians who were new in the Christian faith. And they were undergoing tremendous persecution for their faith. Some had begun to not even gather with the community of believers because of the pressure that they were under. And they were being drawn and tempted to leave the Christian faith and to go back to the Judaism that they had been a part of in particular, the ceremonies and the rituals of Judaism. Now, when you go through the Old Testament and when you get to the era in which Jesus is born and you look at the Jewish faith during that period of time, God had come to His people 
back in the Old Testament, and he had set up what was called the sacrificial system. And I'm not going to go into all of the details of that system, but as you read through Genesis, Exodus, and particularly the book of Leviticus, you begin to see that system come together. And it was around offerings, offering that often that were like grain offerings. It was an agrarian society, so people would offer offerings to the Lord of various grains. It was also often animal sacrifices, and you would have different bulls and uh, particularly lambs that were offered as sacrifices. And these sacrifices were given in prescribed ways at prescribed times. Now, this is the way that the sacrifices functioned in those days. God was saying to his people through the sacrificial system several object lessons. Number one, all of us have a sin problem. And God has to do something about the sin problem. So God is going to send a sacrifice who is going to take care of the sin problem that you and I have. The sacrifice will take on the punishment for our sin. Now, in the Old Testament sacrificial system, imagine with me that this pen represents our sin, our guilt, and our iniquity. The folks would go to the synagogues, and in particular to the temple in Jerusalem, they would offer their sacrifices, and just like I'm going to take this pen and cover it up with this handkerchief, the idea behind the sacrificial system in the Old Testament is that the sacrifices were covering up sin. The sin and the results of it were still there. They were just being temporarily covered over by the use of the sacrifices. But those sacrifices were pointing to that day that Hebrews is all about when God would not cover up our sin, but would take our sin out and remove it. So that's the difference between the Old Testament sacrificial system, sin is being covered up, and the New Testament, when Jesus comes and dies on the cross, He doesn't cover it up, He takes it out. He gets rid of it. So in Hebrews chapter 10, the setup for this chapter is that in the first six chapters, we have the preeminence of Christ. That is that Jesus is above everything and beyond everything and everyone. In chapters 7 through 10, we have the preeminence of His priesthood, His ability to do what I just talked about, and that is to take out our sin. Now let's begin Hebrews chapter 10, verse 5. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, He said, Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, that, again, is referring to that Old Testament sacrificial system. Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body have you prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, this is Jesus, what he says to the Father God in heaven before he comes to this earth. Then I said, behold, I have come to do your will. O God, it is written of me in the scroll of the book. When he had said the above, you have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings. These are offered according to the law. Then he added, Behold, I have come to do your will. He does away with the first, that is all those former ceremonies, offerings, etc., in order to establish the second. And by that will, 
we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Now, the writer of Hebrews here is speaking about what Jesus did on stage when he came. And he quotes from the 40th Psalm, where Jesus looks at the Father before he leaves heaven, and he says to the Father, Lord, Father God, I'm leaving here, and I'm leaving here according to your will. I am going to do your will. Now, the word translated will here, it was a Greek word that meant design. And he is saying here, Father, you have designed a life for me to live on that earth. You have designed a purpose for me when I get there. You have designed a way that I'm going to go about offering the body that you are going to give me when I am born to secure the salvation for the people that are on that earth and will be on that earth. It is by your design and it is also by your grace. It's being done in your grace and your power. So when Jesus got ready to step out of heaven and be born on this earth, he knew the reason he was coming. It was crystal clear to him in heaven the purpose of his coming, and he knew that his life would climax in the cross. He understood that the body that God was going to give him, that human body that he was born with in Bethlehem, those hands would be used to touch sick bodies. That mouth would be used to speak the power of God and to teach people about God. Those eyes would be used to look at people and into the lives and eyes of people that Jesus loved, that God loved and wanted to have a relationship with. Those feet would be used to walk to people and to go to people who were in bondage and to set them free. But he also knew that that body that he was being given, that body that was designed by God himself, as the hymn says, that body that had that blood in it that was so divine that that body ultimately would meet its ultimate destiny on the cross when it would have nails driven through it and he would be crucified. But he also knew that that body had power resonant from God in it, that after it had laid in the grave for three days, that body would be raised from the dead. Jesus said, that is your will, God, that is your design, and that is what I am going to do. Now, when Jesus looked at the Father and he said, Father, I'm going to do your will. It wasn't like Jesus was saying, this is some dreaded, difficult, burdensome thing that I've got to do. That I don't want to do, but I'm going to do it anyway. Jesus looked at the Father and he said, I am going to do your will. But he said it with an attitude of joy. He said it with commitment. He said it with peace. He said it with resolve. Lord, I'm going to do your will. I want you to imagine with me 
the conversation between the Son and the Father in heaven, and in particular the expressions on their faces as they began to anticipate what was going to happen when the Son got there. How could Jesus leave the glory and the power of heaven, the angels, I mean all that heaven is. We on this side of heaven talk about we're going to you know, go to heaven someday and we're all anxious and excited about getting there. When a believer dies, we talk about how great heaven is and where they have gone and how we hope to join them someday. But Jesus is leaving all of that to come to this earth and to the sin, the degradation, and the mess that this earth is in. Everything we talk about leaving, he's saying he's coming too. How could he be excited about that? How could there be joy in his heart, determination and enthusiasm about going there? Because I believe when Jesus got ready to step out of heaven and he anticipated what was going to happen, he said, God, I'm going to do your will. Jesus thought, I'm going to encounter sick bodies and I'm going to have the opportunity for the power of God to be released through me for those bodies to be healed. I'm going to walk into the city of Nain one day and there's going to be a widow lady going through that city and her son is laid in a casket and I'm going to have the opportunity to walk up and the power of God's going to touch that casket and touch that body and raise her to life. I'm going to have the opportunity to walk up to Lazarus' grave and to say, Lazarus, come forth and Lazarus is going to come forth and i got to make sure when I say that that I just say the name Lazarus because if I say come forth, every grave on the earth is going to break loose and people are going to come forth. So i got to make sure I just say Lazarus Lazarus' name when I say that, so that the power of God is on display. Jesus was excited because he knew that was going to happen. He knew that day was going to come when the lady who was caught in adultery and they were ready to kill her is going to be thrown in front of him. And he was going to look at her and say, hey, neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. I forgive you. I release you. You got a new life. You got a new chance. Jesus knew that those days were going to be there when he would look at 12 men many of which other people looked at as failures and screw-ups and mess-ups, Peter, James, John, Bartholomew, Matthew, Luke, etc. And he would say to those 12 guys, follow me, and I'm going to make you fishers of men. I'm going to take you, I'm going to transform you. Oh, but it doesn't stop there, folks, because when Jesus got ready to step out of heaven, through his eternal gaze, he looked at us, he knew we were coming, he knew our day on this earth was coming. And Jesus said, I'm coming for them. I'm excited about a relationship that I'm going to be able to have with them. I'm going to get to die for them, rise for them, change them, walk with them. And above all else, I'm going to get to be with them. Folks, do you realize that Jesus came because you are more important to Him than an angel choir? You are even more important to Him than being able to stay in the presence of His heavenly Father in perfect relationship with Him. You are more important to Him than when Jesus said it is finished and it turned dark on the cross and the Father had to turn His back on the Son because all of our sin had been placed on Him that Jesus came and went through that because we are that important to Him. I'm coming to do your will, O oh God. I'm coming to do your will because He changes everything. Everything that Jesus touches, He changes for the better. Everything, every person that Jesus speaks, when He speaks into it, He speaks creative power into that person. He changes them. He changed the cross from a place of horror to a place of redemption. He changed a tomb that was filled to one that was empty. He changed the tomb and death to a place of resurrection. 
He changed what was on stage. And he changes us. How does he change us? Notice verse 10. We have been sanctified. We have been sanctified. Now, sanctification is one of those big theological terms, and it really does sound impressive, doesn't it? Y'all leave here today, and somebody asks you, what did the preacher talk about in church today? You can say he talked about sanctification. And people are going to look at you, and they're going to probably not even ask you what that meant because they're so impressed with the word and taken back by it. <laughs> what in the world is sanctification? Well, let me give you two ideas here that are bound up in this word. Number one, the word means to separate something. To separate. And the idea is, is that when he has sanctified us, is that he has taken us and separated us from sin and unto himself. We have been taken from sin into a relationship with Jesus. Now, that is significant in and of itself. But the way he expresses this, and we can't pick it up too well in English, but the Greeks had what was called the perfect tense. And the perfect tense worked this way in their language. It spoke of something that happened in the past, but the full effects of it continue into the present and will keep on continuing. So follow me on this. It happened on this day, but it continues to happen today. It will happen tomorrow. It will happen next week. It never stops happening. And that is the tense that is used here. When he sanctified us, it started at a point in time, but it continues today. It will be tomorrow. When you wake up a week from today, it is continuing to happen, and he just continues to sanctify us. So you see, well, sometimes we ask people, when did you get saved? That's really not the best question in the world to ask. What we need to ask is, when did God start saving you? Because you see, when Jesus saved me, that was that day. That's when it started. But he's saving me as much today as he ever was. He's going to be saving me tomorrow. He's going to be saving me a year from now. He'll be saving me 10 years from now. He will be saving me 10,000 years from now. When I die, on the day that I die, He is saving me then as much as He was the day I came to Him. So salvation is not just a past experience that happened to us on a day. It is a continuous process in our lives. And that's what He's talking about here. He says He has... We have been sanctified. We've been separated to Him. Now, when He separates us, how does He do that? Well, first of all, when Jesus died on the cross, Jesus bought all of us. He bought my mind. He bought my body. He bought my soul. Now, one of the problems we tend to have is we talk about our souls getting saved and leave it at that. But Jesus didn't die just for the soul. He came to save all of us. And He's saving all of us Every day. And all of us belongs to Him. So my soul just hasn't been saved and is in the process of being saved. He has and is saving my mind. 
So I use my mind to honor and glorify Him and to probe who He is and to develop my mind in the full capacities that He's given to me. How about the body? I make sure my body is used to honor and glorify Him. And I also know that when this body is over with and dies and decays, part of that saving process, the Scriptures teach, is that there's a, a new body that He's going to give us, shaped, fashioned after His resurrection body. He says that He's bought the body, the mind, and the soul. Now, when I live in obedience to His Word, that is when I'm being separated from sin. Now, I want you to follow this two-step process with me, please. This idea of sanctification is that I am being separated from the sin. For what purpose? Not so I can just step over here and say, I'm not going to do this sin, and I'm not going to do that sin, and I'm not going to do the other sin. It's to a relationship with Jesus. I grew up um, in a very, what we would call today, legalistic religious system and we had rules on top of rules on top of rules and I mean you got up every day and a good Christian made sure that you checked off all the rules there were all the things that you didn't do and then there were the things that you did do and if you were keeping all the rules then you God was happy with you etc and if you weren't keeping all the rules then you were you know you in tough shape God was going to look to nuke you for not keeping all the rules so we were constantly looking at all the rules now, this is what I discovered in watching folks around me who were trying to keep the rules, and even discovered it myself. After a certain point in the ball game, you just give up. Too many rules to keep. Another reason you give up is you don't really have any desire to keep the rules. In fact, breaking the rules starts looking pretty interesting. Even start looking fun. In fact, sometimes you sit in church and you think about the rules you're going to break once you get out of church. Uh, etc. <laughs> and this is what we missed. If I got all the rules, but I don't have a relationship with Jesus, then after a while, I'm going to give up on the rules. And my relationship with sin, if it's not replaced with a relationship with Jesus, is going to seem a whole lot more fun to me than rule keeping. And what this idea of sanctification is that God's not coming to us and just saying, okay, here's all the don'ts. He's saying, let me show you something. Let me, let me call you into something. I'm calling you into a relationship with me. And let me tell you where the relationship's going to take you. You're going to stay out of sin eventually, not because you're sitting there just saying, I've got to keep the rules, I've got to keep the rules, I've got to keep the rules. You're saying, man, I love Jesus. And the love I have for Jesus means I don't want to engage in that sin anymore. I enjoy Jesus and my relationship with Him more than I enjoy sin. And folks, when our enjoyment of Jesus begins to get greater and higher and more intense than our enjoyment of sin, we start walking away from the sin and start walking to Him, not because we are such good rule keepers or we're trying to sneak around and be rule breakers. It's because we have found a new love. And His name is Jesus. And that is that sanctification that He is talking about here. That's how it plays out in our lives. Now, let me give you one other word. The whole thing I just described to you is known as holiness. Okay? And I want you to write this down. God is not calling us to be good. He is calling us to be holy. 
I'm going to say it again. God is not calling us to be good. He is calling us to be holy. You see, if I'm just a good person, it means I keep the rules. The holiness that He's calling me to means I am loving Jesus and my love for Him is intensifying every day. My enjoyment of Him is growing every day. I have a theory that most of us long term really only end up doing the stuff we enjoy. And what He's calling us into is a relationship with Jesus where we enjoy Him so much that we're letting go of the junk. And that is that call to holiness. That is that working of holiness in our lives. Now notice what he says in verse 10. And by that will, that is the will that Jesus expressed when he came here, we have been sanctified, how? Through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ. We were sanctified, how were we sanctified? By Jesus offering his body. Why? is sanctification, why is this called to holiness, why is falling in love with Jesus and knowing Him and just enjoying Him, why is that so important? Because Jesus gave His life, He gave His body, He gave His blood for you and I to enjoy Him, to have that kind of relationship with Him. That's the price He paid so that we could have that relationship with Him. And notice how He ends it. I love that. Once for all. Once for all. There's the security. Jesus doesn't have to die for us over and over and over again. We don't have to come to Him and start the sanctification process over and over and over again. He said He did it. He marked it down once for all. So when that process of sanctification, that call to holiness begins in our lives and we come to know Him as our Savior, He says He just continues that. Once for all, it started, you're secure, it continues. Now, does that mean that every day goes easy and smooth and et cetera? No, it doesn't. Some days our love for Him and our commitment to Him grows by leaps and bounds, and then we go through other seasons. It looks like we're straining for any amount of love. We're growing in Him. The issue is not how fast, it's that He's committed to making it happen in our lives. In John Bunyan's book, The Pilgrim's Progress, there's an interesting story in there amongst so many fascinating stories. But in this particular story, there is the young Christian who is making his journey in the Christian life, and he goes into this reception room. And when he walks into this reception room, there's a gentleman with him called the interpreter, whose job is to interpret everything he's seeing. And there's a thick coat of dust all over the room. Everything is coated in dust. And the person that's in the room calls for someone to clean the place up. And so this guy comes in with a broom and he starts sweeping it. Have you ever swept a room that's got dust all over the place? What happens? It just starts flying all over the place. You're coughing and choking. Well, that's what happens to Christian in the story. He starts coughing and choking, dust flying all over the place. And when the person stops sweeping and the dust begins to settle, the interpreter calls for a girl to come in there, and she comes in with water. And she begins to sprinkle the water 
all over the room. Where all the dust is, she starts sprinkling water all over it. And then she begins to clean the room. And now that the water is on the dust and it's damp, they're able to clean the room. And Christian says, I don't understand this. And the interpreter looks and says simply this. All that dust is our life before we come to know Jesus. And all of our ten attempts to clean ourselves up, all we do is stir up the dust. But when Jesus comes in, He puts water over all that mess, and then He cleans it all out of us. That's what He's talking about here in Hebrews chapter 10. That's why He came. Let's pray. Lord, thank You that You came to carry out the will of God in our lives. Thank you, Jesus, for what you have come to accomplish. Lord, thank you for cleaning us up. But Lord, help us now to say to you, Jesus, I want to respond to your call to holiness. And Jesus, I want to say to you as you said to your Father, I have come to live your will, Lord. My life, with your help, by the power of your Holy Spirit, will be about knowing you, and loving you, and enjoying you, and walking with you. Lord, thank you for the cleanup job. Looking forward to what you've got. Their heads bowed and their eyes closed. If you're here today and you need to trust Jesus as your Lord and Savior, then I want to invite you in just a moment as we sing to walk the aisle of this church and to say, today I want to know Jesus. I want to begin to know what it is to love Him and to walk with Him and to serve Him. I invite you to come. If you sense that the Lord's leading you to become part of our church family, we invite you to come. If you need to come and kneel and pray, or if you just need to stand there as we sing and, and just talk to the Lord about whatever it is the Holy Spirit of God is, is speaking to you about, then I invite you to do that. Lord, have your way with us now, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together and sing, come if you will.